Well, praise the Lord. We're so blessed here. Uh, there are many places you could go today and you would not find that many kids. And so we just praise the Lord for the blessing that he's given to us here. And we, we really count it a blessing. We don't take that for granted. And uh, it's so exciting to see God work in the lives of boys and girls. We're glad to see you here today. Uh, trust you've had a good week. And uh, trust you're looking forward to this new week and what God has for you. Hope you brought your Bible along. If you did, open it to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. If you did bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. If you find it, find Philippians, the second chapter. I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles and uh, be prepared and ready for God to speak to you uh, as you come to the Lord's house. Philippians chapter 2. I'll be reading there in a few minutes. We continue a study that we're doing in this little book called Still Joyful. Still Joyful. Philippians chapter 2. I understand a man joined a monastery of Trappist monks. And when he did so, he took a vow of celibacy and a vow of poverty. And he was also required to take a, 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 a vow of silence. In fact, in this monastery, uh, he was only allowed to speak two words a year. And those two words were spoken during his review in front of the leaders of this monastery at the end of the year. So this man served the complete first year in absolute silence. And at the end of the year, as he stood at his performance review, he was allowed to speak. And the two words that he spoke were these. Food cold. He then served his second year in absolute silence. At the end of that year, he went in for his review. He was allowed to speak again. Only two words, mind you. And his two words at the end of the second year were these. Bed hard. He then served the third year in absolute silence. And at the end of the, that year, he went in for his review. He had two words he was allowed to speak. And the two words he spoke were these. I quit. And he got up to leave. One of the leaders that was there kind of stopped him and said, your decision doesn't surprise us. After all, for the last three years, you've done nothing but complain. I understand another man renowned for his constant complaining was on the receiving end of a substantial sum of money. And when he finally got his hands on that money, he turned and complained to his wife that it was not as much as he thought it should be. But he got this money and within days he went out and he bought himself a farm and he asked his wife uh, what they should name the farm. And she said to him, why don't you call it Belly Acres? Belly Acres. Now, we kind of chuckle at these men, but in all honesty, it's probably an uncomfortable chuckle because we sadly see ourselves in them at times. Um, I wonder if anybody here today could put up a hand and say, honestly, I never complain. I never grumble. I never mumble. I never murmur. Could anybody here today honestly, and I'm not going to put up my hand. Can anybody honestly put up their hands and say, I never complain, I never grumble, I never murmur. Sadly, too many of us spend too much time living at belly acres. 
In fact, the title of today's message is just that living at Belly Acres. And I hope after we're done today with this passage of Scripture that all of us will be ready to move away from Belly Acres never to return. In fact, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, we're commanded, it says there, do all things without murmurings and disputings. In other words, do all things without murmurings, that is grumbling, complaining and muttering and disputings, that is arguing and with criticisms. In other words, do all things without complaining and arguing. Now, you might be thinking, well, preacher, surely this does not mean what it appears to mean. To do all things without murmuring and grumbling and complaining and to live without arguing and dissension. Well, as the scholars tell me that in the Greek there, the present imperative, it stresses the necessity to keep on doing at all times in all situations. So it means that in all times, in all situations, do not murmur, do not complain, do not argue. So it does say what it appears to say, to do all things all the time without complaining and arguing. I think we often fail to recognize and see just how awful complaining is. Pastor John MacArthur said, in reality, every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord and is one of the ugliest of sins. I want you to think about that for a moment. In reality, every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord and is one of the ugliest sins. To see just how much murmuring, And grumbling is an offense to God. All you have to do is go back to the Old Testament and read the story of the children of Israel. David Jeremiah said the children of Israel turned murmuring into an Olympic sport. And we read over and over again. Let me read you a passage. If you want to turn to Numbers chapter 14, I want to read you a passage just to kind of set the stage today. Numbers chapter 14. And keep your spot in Philippians. We'll be back. But Numbers chapter 14, we'll begin reading at verse 26. Numbers 14, begin reading at verse 26. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land, concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which you search the land, even 40 days, each day for a year, shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed and there they shall die. You think about the children of Israel, and then we read in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, these verses in 9 through 11. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. 
Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for examples or in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are coming. In other words, we look at the children of Israel and the story, and that's an example to us. We're to learn from that. We're not to make the same mistakes and do the same things they did when they disobeyed and they were evil in the sight of God. And because of their murmuring and their disbelief and their unbelief, their carcasses fell there in the wilderness. I think you get the picture. But really, what should we do? Is it possible to live this way? Is it possible to do all things without murmurings and disputings? To do all things without grumbling and complaining and griping and muttering and arguing? Is it really possible? Well, let's read our passage today in Philippians, and I think you'll see the answer. We're going to learn some things together today. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start there at verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessings. Quiet our hearts. Speak to our hearts right now. May your will be accomplished in this time in Jesus name. Amen. Now, remember, beloved, if you're with us last week, we studied the passage that comes right before this. An awesome, an awesome passage where Christ is set forth as the supreme example of humility. And in fact, the very first word of our passage today, verse 12, wherefore connects us back to that example because of what Christ did for us. And humbling himself and coming for us and and becoming our sacrifice and our substitute because of his example, Paul says, wherefore, my beloved, do these things based upon what Christ has done. And he gets very specific in what he's saying here. Now, listen, in order to live a life without complaining, you have to work out what God has worked in. You have to work out what God has worked in. Look back at verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved. As ye have always obeyed, not it's in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, some have taken these verses and they use these verses to teach what they do not teach. Let's deal with that right away this morning. Let's get it out of the way. These verses do not teach, they do not teach that we're to work for our salvation. They also do not teach that we help God save us. Notice the words carefully. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It does not say work at your salvation. It says work out your salvation. 
The scripture is very clear time and time again. Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Settle in your mind once and for all. A person cannot earn, work for, or merit salvation. It's not a weighing of the good deeds versus the bad deeds and hoping it comes out in our favor. If a person lives a moral, decent life, And they're considered to be an upstanding citizen, yet that same person dies without the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're going to spend an eternity apart from Him in a place called hell. In order to get to heaven, a person must be born again. They must trust in Christ and His finished work. They must repent of their sin and place their faith totally and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder today, friend, have you done that? Recognizing that you're a sinner, you cannot save yourself, but then recognizing and realizing as God the Holy Spirit works in your life, that Christ died in your place, that Christ shed his precious blood for you, that Christ desires to save you. And if you'll turn from your sin to Christ, he will save you. If you've never done that, friend, let me encourage you to do it this hour, this very moment, to trust Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior. This verse says we're to work out. Now, in order to work out something, it must first be worked in. And you see that balance here in these two verses. God works in you and you work out what God has already worked in. It has the idea of working a field or or working a mine. You see, it's in there. But through discipline and through working out, you bring out what's already in there. And praise be to God, according to these verses, God not only has worked in, he also gives us the desire to do this and also the ability. Look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will, that is the desire to do, the will to do, and to do, that is the ability to do, of what? His good pleasure. And to really understand this, I think we need to think about salvation for a moment. If you're a believer today, you can look at your life, if you will, From three perspectives, the past, the present and the future. And in regards to salvation, we notice that Philippians 1, 6 says this, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God is working in our lives. Now, as we look to the past, we know that God saved us. If we trust in Christ as Savior, God saved us. God justified us. Sometime in our past history, it may have been here in this church. It may have been a revival meeting. It may have been a Sunday school class. It may have been at Bible camp or listening to the radio or in an evangelistic crusade. But somewhere in your past history, there was a moment when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and God justified you. He declared you just and righteous in Christ in the past. But then we know that God is working in our lives in the present. We think about this as a big word, sanctification. Sanctification simply means that we're growing and being made more like Christ. And God works in our lives and we become more like Christ. And then we know ultimately God will transform our bodies 
in the future. That is our glorification. Will that be a wonderful thing? That God's going to do that. So there's justification, there's sanctification, there's glorification. Now, here in Philippians today, when it says work out your own salvation, it's that second perspective in view. That is our sanctification. That is our growing, becoming more like Jesus. In other words, we're cooperating with God as he works in us. And as he works in us and we cooperate, we're being made more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It says specifically in verse 13, we're doing this to his good pleasure. That is for his glory. We emphasize that over and over again, that we're to glorify God. We're to please God. We're to exalt the Lord. Now, the Philippians have been justified already. Uh, Paul writes to them there in uh, verse one, Paul of uh, chapter one, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. They're already saved people. And so when it says work out there in chapter two and verse 12, it means to develop. It means to fully accomplish. It means to translate, to put our position into practice, as Matthew says it. Listen, he said Christians play both an active and a passive part in their relationship with God. They must believe, yet they must be quickened. To grow spiritually, it is imperative for them to walk in holiness, yet to be led by the Spirit as well. Human accountability and divine sovereignty thus forms two sides for the channel of the redemptive purpose. A genuine effort involves God and human as co-laborers. Believers cannot be spiritual by themselves, nor can Christ live his life through unyielded vessels. And we've got to be careful not to go to either extreme, but to stay balanced. To realize that we're to cooperate with the Lord as he works in our lives. We work out what he's worked in. He's making us more like Jesus. We're yielding ourselves to him. We're submissive to him. We're obedient to him as he works in our lives. And it says we're to do that how? With fear and trembling. Look at the verse again. Work out, uh, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not the idea of cowering. It's not the idea of fright like this. It's the idea of being reverent, of being submissive. To being obedient, realizing he is the Lord and he's working in our life. Now, I don't know about you, but listen, it's exciting to realize and be reminded today that God is working in us. He doesn't just give us instructions to leave us on our own. He even provides the energy, the desire, the will to do of his good pleasure. He has a plan for your life. That's exciting, beloved. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, he's not through with us. We're all a work in progress, if you will. (laughs) We need to remember that. Now, positionally, we're perfect in Christ. But practically speaking, we're being made more and more and more like Christ as God works in us. And we work out what he's working in. Would you remember that, beloved, as you deal with one another and as you deal with me? And as I deal with you, we do remember that God's not through with us yet. We're a work in progress. We've been justified if we trusted Christ. We're on our way to heaven, but he's working in us day by day and week by week and month by month to make us more like Jesus. To make us more like the Lord Jesus. Now, if we hope to obey this command in verse 14, 
to do all things without murmuring and arguing. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the Philippians needed this because, you know, what happens is it says do all things without what murmurings and disputings. What happens many times is the murmuring, the complaining then leads to arguing, which is the disputing there. The Philippians needed this because there was some disagreement in the church. We don't know exactly about what it was about or or the extent of it, but we know in Philippians four, verse two, Paul says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. There were two ladies there that were not seeing eye to eye, that were not getting along. And and, and if, if you will work out what he's worked in, and if you'll live a life without complaining and arguing, there are some wonderful things that will come, some results that will follow. Number one, you'll be a much more pleasant person to be around. Think about that for a moment. You ever been around anybody that all they do is complain, all they do is murmur? When you see them coming down the sidewalk, you, you kind of go the other way, don't you? You'll be a much more pleasant person to be around. Yes, certainly. You'll be a lot more like the Lord Jesus, and that's a wonderful thing. But there are some more things mentioned here that will come as a result of our working out our salvation and doing things without murmuring and complaining and arguing and all those things. Let's notice several here. Number one, you will shine brightly. You will shine brightly. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You will shine brightly. Matthew 5, 16 says it this way. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. This verse has everything to do with our testimony and having a good testimony. MacArthur says blameless here means a light that cannot be criticized because of sin and evil. Harmless can also be translated innocent. It describes a life that is pure and unmixed and unadulterated with sin. It's like a high quality metal without any alloy. In other words, you have a good testimony. Your walk matches your talk. You're not living a hypocritical life. Other people look at your life and they see consistency. They see a person who loves the Lord Jesus. They see a person who's shining brightly for the Lord Jesus. Paul said to the Philippians, you live in a crooked and perverse nation or crooked and perverse generation. Listen, beloved, we live in a crooked and perverse generation and nation. Evil abounds all around us. The days are dark. And he says, we're to shine like stars. We're to shine like lights. We're to reflect the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're separated from the world, but not isolated from the world. We're to be shining brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to live different lives because we are different. We've been born again and we've trusted the Lord. And we're to shine brightly. Imagine now what lost men and women think when they look at the church, the bride of Christ, And they look at the church and all they see is envy and strife and bickering and complaining and arguing and fussing and fighting. And they see this church that way. And yet these same folks from that same church come to them and say, hey, let us share the love of Jesus with you. What do they think? No, thank you. My fishing buddies treat one another better than that. My Red Hat Club members treat one another better than that. And yet here we are, the bride of Christ. 
We're to shine brightly. Somebody said instead of being question marks for Christ, we need to be exclamation points. And they're right. We need to shine brightly. We need to work out what he's working in. We need to do all things without murmurings and disputings. You will shine brightly. That deals with our life, the way we live. The next part deals with our lip. That is our speech. You'll shine brightly. Next, you will share boldly. Look at verse 16. Holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain. Neither labored in vain. Holding forth. J. Dwight Pentecost says it has the idea. It literally means to hold out the light. It has the idea of two strangers traveling, going through the night. One has a light and one doesn't have a light. And the one who has a light extends his light out so the one following can see his footsteps as well. If you've ever been out in the dark trying to walk along with no light, you understand how wonderful it is to have a light. You know what a joy it is if somebody comes along and shares their light with you. Listen, we live in a dark world. A dark world. We're to shine as light as we just learned, but we're also to hold forth the word of life. We're to hold forth the gospel, the Lord Jesus. We're to hold forth the word of God. We're to tell others about Jesus, the mighty to save. But if we're so busy murmuring and complaining and muttering and fussing and fighting and doing all those things, we're so distracted by those things that we don't see around us the multitudes, the millions of people dying and going into a Christless eternity. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we must shine brightly and we must share boldly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, not in our power alone. We go forth in his power. We go forth in the Holy Spirit. Dr. Paul Brand was speaking to a medical college in India. And he was speaking on that verse I just mentioned. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. And in front of that lectern that he's speaking that day was an oil lamp. And it was basically a cotton wick burning from the shallow end of a dish of oil. And as he preached there that day, that uh, that lamp ran out of oil. The wick burned dry and the smoke made him cough. I mean, it was an offensive thing. And he immediately used the opportunity. He said, some of us here are like this wick. We're trying to shine for the glory of God, but we stink. And that's what happens, he says, when we use ourselves as the fuel of our witness rather than the Holy Spirit. He said wicks can last indefinitely, burning brightly without irritating smoke if the fuel, the Holy Spirit, is in constant supply. Remember, we're working out as he works in. He provides the energy. He provides the desire. He provides the ability. We're cooperating with him. As those of us going through the share Jesus without fear on Sunday evenings, we've been reminded over and over, depend on the Holy Spirit to do the work. Depend on the Holy Spirit to do the work. You've heard it said over and over again, success in living the success is living the Christian life daily, sharing the gospel and trusting God for the results. That's success. 
living the Christian life daily, sharing the gospel and trusting God for the results. We're a messenger. We're to shine brightly. We're to share boldly. But God is the one that does the work. Don't grow downhearted. Don't grow discouraged. You share the gospel and trust God to work in hearts and lives. We're working out what he's working in. And if we'll do that, as we live a life free from complaining, we are going to shine brightly. We're going to share boldly. And then we're going to sacrifice joyfully. Look at verse 16, the second part. He says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. We come back to the theme of this book. The theme of joy, the theme of rejoicing. You remember, we call this study still joyful. Why? Paul is in prison. Paul is in Rome, probably at this time under house arrest, but he's still joyful. And Paul desires to finish well. He, he desires to do well for the Lord to the last day. He sees his life and, and even his possible death, his martyrdom as a drink offering being poured out. And he says, I do it gladly. I do it willingly. I do it for Jesus. Listen, Paul recognized what we need to recognize. Listen, living your life for Jesus is not a sacrifice at all. Living your life for Jesus is not a sacrifice at all. Now, it should be an offering, but it's not a sacrifice in the sense of loss. Listen, living for Jesus is not losing. We're gaining. We're winning. We fail to remember that. As we're serving Jesus. Beloved, if I had a thousand lives to live, it would be a joy to give them all to him. To live for Jesus. How can we ever consider our service for him a sacrifice? It's an offering we give to him, but not a sacrifice in the sense of loss. Go back and read what he did for us. Beginning there at verse five of the same chapter, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And on and on it goes, based upon what Christ has done, live this kind of life. For Christ. So we give him our lives. Do all things. All things. Without murmurings and disputings. Work out what he's working in. Shine brightly. Share boldly. Sacrifice joyfully. Rejoice. Rejoice. But you know. I think Fred Craddock hit the nail on the head. He was sharing with a group of ministers one time. And he said, to give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. He says, we, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a thousand dollar bill and laying it on the table and says, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But listen, 
He says the reality for most of us is God sends us to the bank. And he has us cash in that thousand dollars. A thousand dollars. For quarters. That's a lot of quarters, isn't it? He says we go through life. Putting out 25 cents here. And 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor's kids troubles instead of saying get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give a cup of cold water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. He says usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love. 25 cents at a time. He says it'd be easy to go out in a flash of glory. But it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And as you think about your life in that regard, beloved, the question is, will we give those quarters of our life out gladly and willingly and rejoicingly? Or will we do so complaining all the while? How about you, friend? Are you ready today to move out of belly acres to get out of that place? I'll be honest, this is a convicting message. After I was done, I caught myself this past week. I caught myself. Let me give you some suggestions before we're through today. One or two. This week, starting today. Believer. Every time you're tempted to complain or murmur, stop. And instead, offer a word of thanksgiving to God instead. If you will begin to listen to your speech and listen to what you're saying, I think it will amaze you to realize just how much time we spend at Belly Acres. Just how much time and just how much we complain. But imagine if I were to stop every time and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity before us. Could you do that? Would you do that this week? Let me let me suggest this, too. Why not ask a family member or a friend to help you? Your spouse, they'd probably be glad to help you stop complaining, right? Your children, a co-worker. Say, listen, if I start complaining this week, I want you to stop me. Say, then you're, you're bellyaching again. You're complaining again. That's a practical thing you take with you today. Listen, something else. I ran across this this week from one pastor I was reading, and it really struck me. It's important in life to respond, listen, theologically rather than emotionally. I said, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, let me unpack that for you for a moment. Most of the time we respond emotionally. We respond emotionally. Oh, oh how could this happen? Oh, no, we, we respond emotionally. Rather than theologically. What do you mean, preacher? Well, we we respond in a way that does not acknowledge that our God is sovereign. That he's in control. That his word says in Romans 8, 28, that it's working all things together for our good. We we don't respond when we respond emotionally, recognizing that he is making us more like Jesus. We don't respond when we respond just emotionally, not theologically, recognizing that God, everything that comes in my life has been filtered through his hands, that he's in control. We respond emotionally rather than theologically. Now, listen, 
That's good preaching and hard living. That's easier for me to say in this pulpit than it is for us to put into practice. But we need to get to that point recognizing that our God is in control. Our God loves us. Our God is working in us. And we need to receive the things that come in our lives, trusting God all the while. And at the same time, being still joyful and praising him. Why? As we said earlier, every complaint, every complaint a believer makes against, is against the Lord. And it's an ugly sin. We complain, we're saying, in essence, God, you've messed up. God, you don't love me like I thought you did. God, you don't know what you're doing. Because we complain, we complain, we complain. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Would you take that challenge today? Not in your own strength. We've already said what? We work out what he works in. This is God's desire for us to live a joyful, content Christian life. Does that mean we're going to be perfect, practically speaking? No. You know, we'll complain as soon as that door opens back there. Boy, it's cold. <laughs> That's what I caught myself coming to church. I said, well, I can stop. Every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord. And it's one of the ugliest of sins. Keep that in mind. Father, we love you. We praise you. We adore you. Father, help us. You've blessed us in so many ways. Yet we do. We complain. We murmur. We mutter. We. Father, forgive us. Help us to see our lives theologically. Rather than just emotionally. To realize you're at work. You love us. You're working in us. You're changing us. You're molding us to the image of Christ. Father, help us to work out what you're working in. Help us to cooperate and be yielded and submissive and reverent as you work in our lives. Bless this invitation, I pray. In the Savior's name. Amen.